Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have a breaking news episode hot off the press, and it is special because we have Tiffany Peltier back with us. And, uh, you know, when we ask someone back, we definitely love them. So we're so happy to have Tiffany with us. And uh, the reason we have four people with us tonight is because Tiffany, when I asked her to come on, she had said, oh, I'll come on, but I want to bring the author, one of the authors on with me to talk about this latest research article. So we have Marianne Rice, who is now Dr. Marianne Reich, just like Dr. Tiffany Peltier, she just defended her dissertation. Yay, Marianne. And so- Wait, we, wait, wait, Faith, push the cheers button on that one. Oh Come my on. goodness, you do it. I don't even have it near me. So you go ahead, do it for us. <laughs> Anyhow, um, Marianne Rice is one of the authors of this groundbreaking article that just came out. And it is called a meta-analysis on the optimal cumulative dosage of early phonemic awareness instruction. And this is so exciting. And Marianne is one of five authors. And what got my attention was on Twitter when Tiffany tweeted, and I have the quote here, the case for using letters in PA instruction is stacking up higher and higher. So that's phonemic awareness. And we'll explain what it is for those people who are unsure. Um, new research out today. An upside down U-curve found for oral PA instruction. Diminishing returns after less than 10 hours. That caught my attention. So yeah, me too, Faith. But the opposite, in caps, increasingly more returns after 16 hours for phonemic awareness, PA with letters in capital letters. And I want to dive right in. But first, before we do, Tiffany, why don't you start us off and just first tell us the difference between phonemic awareness instruction oral only and then phonemic awareness instruction with letters. And then we'll turn it over to Marianne to clarify some of these misconceptions and why there are diminishing returns with the oral only. So, Tiffany, go ahead. We're so happy you're here. Yes. Okay. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And um, so, phonemic awareness is the ability to distinguish and manipulate the smallest units of speech. So, when we're thinking about instruction in how do we help students become more phonemically aware, there are different ways that teachers do this in classrooms. One is doing this orally. So, just you could do it without. Kids are lining up, they're going to recess, something like that. Any materials in front of you? And you might say, say cat. The kids say cat. Let's chop up cat. At. You're segmenting those phonemes apart. Or you might say, listen, what word am I saying? Like a robot. At. And students might say cat. 
that would be blending. Um, to do it with letters, then you would just maybe have either movable letters or a dry erase board in front of students. And with the letters students have learned, so students can do this if they know two letters, A and T, right? You might say, okay, I'm going to say a word. I want you to break it up. So let's stretch it out, break it up. Um, say at, they echo it. At. Let's stretch it out. At, let's break it up. At, let's write it down. At right? And so they might write it or they might move the letters. Um, that's doing it uh, by having students segment the word. You can also have students blend the word together. So you might say, okay, I'm going to say two sounds. You move the letters as I say them. At. You say it. At. What word? At. So that would be one way to do it uh, with using letters. But a lot of times people think that's phonics, Tiffany. And yes. that's what I want you to clarify. I mean, I could do it, but no, you're why, why don't you just clarify it for us? Yeah. So that phonics is uh, the teaching of letter sound relationships. And so when you're doing this type of activity that I just described with letters, movable letters or dry erase boards, you're working on both phonics and phonemic awareness. You're working on two different goals with students with one activity. So we don't want to think of phonemic awareness as an activity. We want to think of it as a, an awareness or a goal of a lesson. And you can accomplish that goal by either doing activities orally or activities with letters. And if you're accomplishing that goal with letters, you're also tying those brain connections from sounds to symbols, which is what kids need to read and spell. Perfect. Thank you. So now you tweeted out, Tiffany, that, um, you know, and you've been saying this for a long time, that, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of research about oral only. So what really was stunning was in Marianne's research, not only um, did it show that using letters would be a more effective way of building phonemic awareness. You also found that it has diminishing returns after a certain amount of time. Now, that to me is breaking news. So Marianne, I need you to jump in and start talking about this because this is big. A lot of people have been saying, well, you know what, big deal. You know, so we take 10 minutes, five minutes out of the day to do this, like it wouldn't hurt, but that's not what your research is showing. Yeah, so thank you so much. I do want to just quickly put in the names of my co-authors on this piece, including the yeah. professors, Lorena Urbelli, and then Yingzhu, uh, Megan Bishop, and Mark Goodridge all contributed to this paper and this research that we are so excited that is out now. So just to explain a little bit, right, some of the things you mentioned, we know that one of the biggest commodities in school is time. How much instruction yes. time do teachers have? And it's a finite amount. And so we wanted to look at how do you get the biggest bang for your buck with time? Yes. Okay. And so when we talk about these effect sizes or these returns, one thing to keep in mind, let me explain this a little. So this is the part that people kind of got confused about is we're talking about um, the change between a group of students who got this type of really explicit phonemic awareness instruction and students who 
didn't, or sometimes we call it got typical, whatever the typical instruction was that was going on in classrooms, right? And we look at how much improvement did those kids who got the instruction make and how much improvement did the students who just got the usual instruction make? And what's the difference between those two groups? Okay. And so when, what we did is when we modeled all of the studies that we could find that reported about dosage and provided these types of phonemic awareness um, instructional strategies was we wanted to look was where was the biggest difference between these groups, right? That's the biggest bang for your buck is when you get the biggest difference. And so after a certain point, the curves did what we expected them to do. And that is that there was a point where you got a big bang for your buck. And in this case, from the studies we had was about 10 hours. But then after that, the group started to get closer together again. And what that means, what happens is even those students who weren't getting this really explicit phonemic awareness instruction, we're still building some phonemic awareness from that typical instruction, just at a much slower pace, right? And so what we saw was, you know, the students who get this really explicit make a big jump and then level off because they built their phonemic awareness. And so they there's only so much, right? You get a big bang for your buck and then it sort of levels off. You're not gonna keep going on forever. It's not an endless thing, at least not the way we can assess it, right? There's sort of a, a top piece of I've got this phonemic awareness. I can blend and segment sounds now, right? And so you see that diminishing return. And so we were looking at where was that point? And right now, from all the studies we have, it's 10 hours. And I say that because I do want to emphasize to teachers that 10 is not some magic number, right? This is based on the studies we had to look at. And so if we waited another 10 years and had a lot more studies, that number might shift a little bit. So don't get too attached to the 10. Get attached to the idea that there is a bit of a diminishing return and PA instruction doesn't need to go on forever. It needs to be based on what your students need and when they get to that proficiency piece or that awareness piece, they've developed this skill. Okay, so Judy, Judy Boxner, you are in the schools now, New York City schools. Yeah, and not just the podcast. Podcaster, Faith. Oh, yeah, that's right. Way more, way more. Cool. Anyhow, <laughs> anyhow um, you're in the schools and you see all these different programs come and go. We talk about this all the time. And it's really not about the program. It's really about understanding the process. So what do people in schools generally do about phonemic awareness that you've seen in terms of how are they building this? Are they doing oral only? Are they using letters? What are you seeing? So here's the scoop on the school front. Um, so I'm kind of excited about talking about this again, because when we just started this podcast, Faith, which was probably a little over two years ago, we knew this topic was hot, right? I think it was actually our very first episode. Um, I think I've gotten better at podcasting since then. That first episode, <laughs> I was sitting in bed, and I was actually in the dark. But anyway, here I am on my couch, so this is definitely an upgrade. But anyway, in terms of phonemic awareness, you know, we heard bits and pieces of things shouldn't just be, you know, oral only, right? But at that point, most schools were using um, Hegarty version one. I think it was version one. And version one 
did a lot of stuff that was auditory only. And I know that I myself was also using Kilpatrick's one minute drills. And some of those drills were so complex that I felt like behind the scenes, I couldn't really do them. And I didn't know if that was a big deal or not because I read really well. And I was thinking in my head, are those advanced or what was called advanced um, phonemic awareness skills actually really necessary? My gut was telling me no, but at the end of the day, I'm not a researcher, right? I'm just a teacher slash literacy coach slash reading specialist in the trenches. So, you know, my curiosity was piqued more and more. I have to say, you know, I I really was happy that Hegarty put out a new edition. Now, I hope they did it because they followed the research, right? And, you know, after we were sold a story on reading instruction in general in the classrooms, teachers are more aware, researchers are out there speaking up, teachers are listening to researchers. So the new version of Hegarty, what, what should I call it, Hegarty 2.0, um, <laughs> definitely does include more phonics components much sooner. Now, I still think there's an imbalance. I think there's definitely more oral-only activities. I do see a shift towards the attention to the phonics, but it's a very small component of that 10 minutes. And you mean I more with letters, right? So I just want to- Letters. I see, you know, like if the word is chop, now this, the teacher is writing- the diagraph on the board and we're telling the kids make the sound shh, and there's a little dot underneath the shh. then they're saying ah then they're saying and then I'm working with my teachers Hegarty I don't know if Hegarty said to touch and slide but we're trying to connect it to the phonics that we're doing and hopefully trying to help incorporate that practice into reading because everything should be connected right so let the me skill don't get very far. But, you know, coming back to, you know, Kilpatrick's one-minute drills, did he also republish those one-minute drills book or has it been revised? Okay, good question. Um, I'm pretty sure the book stayed as is. Tiffany, do you okay. know if there's been a new edition of Kilpatrick's book? I don't think so. Um, which Is he obligated to do so, Faith? Once research comes out, what if he doesn't want to publish another book? Well, well, you know, I don't know if we'll we'll get into this soon. But I, I it's on my oh. mind. It is on my mind to talk a little bit about that. All right. So, Tiffany, as I open the show with you, you've been saying this for a long time, and you know what's well. The National Reading Panel has been saying this for a long. Well, time. yes, it's look, and I was actually a coach during the time of the national reading panel. Okay. So I actually was using this in reading first. Those were the recommendations. But when I say you've been saying this a long time, I want to make it clear that when David Kilpatrick's book came out in 2015, you started questioning this. This is how I met you along the way. Um, You know, I don't know if it was, 2016 and we started communicating I don't recall 
But I do know that you were questioning this and trying to find research that really supported this theory. All right. Um, so let's go back to what Judy said. Judy wants, wants to know from a practical perspective, what's being done at this point in time? What do you think, Tiffany, in terms of change? Have you seen it? Have you seen the differences? Yeah, I think it really depends where you are, right? So I've, we've, Marianne and I probably all have seen some states going towards, you know, more rigorous standards in phonemic awareness and oral phonemic awareness, not only for instruction, but for assessment and using things like that. And um, we've seen, obviously lots of programs that come out for oral PA and lots of programs being um, pressured to include oral phonemic awareness because of some of this movement. And really none of it was grounded in empirical research that we have, because what we know from research since the National Reading Panel came out, now this other re uh, updates that Marianne and team are doing and other teams of researchers doing are showing the same thing, that what we need is for students to be able to read and spell. And just like Ari showed, you know, back in the day, we want them to be able to connect sounds and symbols. And the best way to accelerate their phonemic awareness is to use letters during that instruction. Now, I want to emphasize, it's not going to hurt students. Like Marion was saying, it's not going to hurt students if you're doing these oral activities with them, but a teacher's time is finite. So doing these activities is great in the hallway. You know, you're lining up, you're waiting for a special, things like that. But if you're in the classroom, use your time wisely, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so good transitional activity, yeah. right? You're in the hallway and you're doing this. It could hey. be one minute. Oh, cheers. Go ahead. Cheer. <laughs> So you're, you're, you're lining the kids up or they're going back in the room. That's their exit ticket or entrance ticket. They do something with phonemic awareness orally. And, and I've seen that. That's great. But use your time wisely. So bring it back to Marianne. Okay. Let's talk a little bit now about some of the recommendations in this article. Could you specifically talk about what should be done at this point? And then we're going to take it back a little bit into an article that was written by Tim Shanahan a while ago called um, RIP to Advanced Phonemic Awareness, where, you know, he questioned this as well, and he was part of the National Reading Panel. So um, go ahead, Marianne, take it away. Let's hear some of those points. Yeah, so I think one of the things that I've seen on Twitter and that people have been drawn to is the finding that we had around PA instruction that did include letters compared to the oral only PA instruction. And we saw where we saw for all of them combined and oral only, only separated was that, you know, that upside down U, that we had a peak and then the diminishing returns, as we call it, right? Less bang for your buck, the longer you went with this oral only PA. We didn't see that for letters. We saw the opposite shape, which was a typical U shape. And so with that, what we found was at about 16 hours of instruction, we actually saw slower 
growth at first. So that's where you get that downslope. And that's because when you're including letters in the instruction, the children are having to try to balance learning both things at the same time. And so it takes a little bit longer as they're learning some of these phoneme grapheme mappings to be able to fully benefit from the PA instruction because you're doing both. But at 16 hours, you saw this big upswing, right? And so then they really started to benefit from the PA instruction. And so that's what we want to see, right? We want to see that they're really getting a, a big benefit from it. I think it's important to mention one thing, and that is that, again, science is based on all of the evidence we have at this time, and science evolves. So the longest study we had that used PA with letters was 24 hours of total cumulative instruction. And so we didn't get another peak. There could be a peak at some point where even PA instruction with letters is going to level off and we're not going to continue to see these, these huge returns on our investment, right? And so I think the big takeaway for me from this article is what we say all the time with teachers, right? Teachers have to know why they're doing the instruction, know how to adjust, and how to use assessment to plan instruction. So I think that's where it gets tricky when curriculums, states, standards try to mandate things, is that really the best instruction is guided by what your data says, right? Do my children still need phonemic awareness instruction to get this skill mastered? Then I should keep providing it. And also understanding the why and that phonemic awareness and reading and spelling are reciprocal, right? So you build a little PA, you start reading text, you get better at PA from reading text and spelling, right? And there's this relationship that you see, which is probably why we saw this big upswing, right? Because children were getting better from being able to read and spell and starting to, to combine those two when you showed them that the point of phonemic awareness is to read and spell words, right? Yeah. And I'll add to like, I love how she was saying that it's not that you're just doing oral phonemic awareness instruction in the first five minutes of your lesson, then you're doing phonics, right? These aren't separate things that have to be thought of as separated. They, they are always should be intertwined in the same exact activity. So you're not using a separate word for phonemic awareness than you are for phonics. And that's the problem with some of these standalone phonemic awareness curriculums is that they're not aligned to your phonic scope and sequence. So mm -hmm. even if you tried, you wouldn't be able to incorporate letters because the students haven't learned those letters yet. Mm -hmm. so it has to be incorporated to your phonics curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that, uh, you know, we were talking about a while ago. And I think Judy brought up a really good point before, and I said, hold off a second, because I do want to get to that. So, Judy, you asked, did David Kilpatrick's book um, change as science, you know, is showing that this is more effective? Did his book change? Did he include an addition or a supplement or anything? I haven't seen that but what's really interesting, Judy, is I think probably most teachers have that book in their classrooms, whether it's the Essentials book or um, the other book with the past test. That's the assessment, the phonemic awareness assessment, which, of course, is a good assessment to use. But as far as using those activities on wow, that, I even think about that, Faith, you brought up a great point. 
the assessment piece, even if you don't revise the book, if you're doing the assessment, now you're collecting data that might not be data that you really need to collect. Well, the assess, I think the assessment could be looked at differently from the instruction. So maybe as an assessment, it's fine, but, but no, but the hardest part do, that, well, does that mean we have to do those one minute drills? I'm going to ask the two ladies here who are researching it. What, what do you say about the past assessment? Yeah. Cause there's a point that's very hard faith that's the what is that the um advanced portion do we need still need to give it is it you know is it I worth our the, ad, the advanced proficiency like reaching those oral only levels um i don't care who answers this but maybe one of you could jump in and start talking about this yeah i'll jump in and marianne you can add add to it but um all i would say is we don't know there's not research on that assessment. We don't know if it's a reliable assessment. We don't know if it's a valid assessment. We don't know if it has predictive validity. So really? use it, you know, teachers were using it to help them place students within the the book. Um, and I think that uh, that's all we know about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All uh, right. Yeah, I'll add, I would say, you know, Curriculum-based measures, um, several of them that have a lot more research behind them would probably be um, where I would send teachers if they were asking about assessments to use in planning their phonemic awareness instruction. Um, and I'll say, I will say though, some of those what have been called advanced like deletion have been included in a lot of really good phonemic awareness instructional pieces because it does tell us something about a, a more advanced level of this, right? But a lot of times kids don't get to being really good at deleting unless they've got some reading and spelling. So it's telling us additional information about a student. And I always like to remember, assessment does not mean you teach what the assessment does. That's what assessment is meant to guide that your, yes. He looked at as two different things. Yes, yes. 100%, yes. Okay. And so what I've seen a lot with assessment is that we, when we assess phonemic awareness, we're assessing it orally. Mm -hmm. And so what we see happening, kind of like nonsense word fluency, like when we, or oral reading fluency, when teachers assess this sometimes and the kids are low, they think, oh, I need to teach them how to read nonsense words, or I need mm -hmm. to teach them fluency, or I need to right. teach them oral phonemic awareness. But that's not the implication of that. And right. I think that's really a disconnect because we don't do a good job as researchers or assessment providers to make sure that teachers know just because we're assessing this doesn't mean that's the instructional implication. Exactly. Exactly. So Judy, you know, I, I think that, you know, what you said before, as far as teachers using this in a practical way, if they have the book in the classroom and they are assessing the thought is, oh, maybe I should be doing this as part of my instruction. And what I think the conversation here is telling us, mm, you know what, maybe there are better things to be doing with our time rather than doing that. Your thoughts, Judy? All right. So at this point, I have like 7,580. <laughs> 
I'm not going to lie. This is a hot topic. I mean, you know, I think Marianne hit it on the money when she said you want the biggest bang for your buck. You were speaking my love language. That is so funny because a couple of hours before you just said that, I was um, forwarding our editor of our school newspaper some tips. One of my tips for foundations was um, the sentence is your biggest bang for your buck and relates directly to the application piece of learning how to read and write. So every moment of our day, we're always as teachers thinking, how do we make sure that we get to that application piece? And the more minutes we waste on something that's not a high leverage skill to break that code, you know, it, it, it does make a difference. So saying, oh, it doesn't hurt anybody is one thing, but is that the best use of your time is such an important thing. Now, I wrote something about a Hegarty reminder, and I want to see how you ladies feel about it, okay? I took a risk before and just put this out there. I said, you should cover each section of Hegarty, but do less words in each section, just making sure that you do each part. Your data can help you as you determine which areas to give the most attention to. Now, the reason that I wrote that is because a, there are still tasks on there that don't correlate to the most high leverage skills, which is segmenting, blending, um, and nonsense word fluency. There is still a lot of deletion going on and adding and stuff like that. And it does concern me because I think that, you know, teachers aren't collecting a lot of data except for their Acadians on, is that phonemic awareness program working well for those students. I don't see a lot of checklists for that. I just see teachers just using like beginning of the year, middle of the year and end of year benchmarks. And, you know, with Hegarty, it's kind of like tier one or different phonemic awareness programs. It's like tier one, we're giving it to everybody. And we're, we might not be utilizing our time in the best way possible. And one more thing is, so there's also a lot of these hands gestures, right? the chopping. I kind of like them. I finally bonded with them. Is there research behind doing those hand gestures? And Hegarty also talks about stopping to do those hand gestures at some point in the gradual release. So, so I walked into a classroom and I saw a teacher no longer doing them. Is there research behind those implications as well? You had like four questions there. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're great. Faith could probably summarize what I was saying. <laughs> so I think the first thing you brought up was um, how many different phonemic awareness skills should we be practicing at once? And uh, one thing that the National Reading Panel found and other research since then is two or three skills per session is great. Just like you said, blending and segmenting, biggest bang for your buck. Why? Blending is reading, segmenting is spelling. Yes. Uh, I think there's also just a disconnect between, you know, Sometimes I see teachers trying to um, assess or intervene or, or are worried about a student's phonemic awareness when that student is already reading fluently. If a student's reading fluently, that's a goal, right? Like that's what we're going for. So um, at that point, obviously, we don't need uh, phonemic awareness instruction like blending and segmenting. So if let's say there's whole class instruction on this. Um, is there a difference for kids with dyslexia? I'm going to throw that out to Marianne because you talked a little bit about 
kids with dyslexia in your research article. Could you um, clarify, um, is there a difference for kids with language-based difficulties? Yeah, so I'll mention a couple of things that I think are important to point out in this article. So a meta-analysis basically is a big term that means we looked at all the studies we could find that fit this criteria, and we're trying to look at them to see what we what patterns we saw in these systematic ways, right? And so something to keep in mind is that actually none of the studies that were included in this looked at whole class phonemic awareness instruction. These were all um, instruction that were provided in small groups or one-on-one. And so that's something to keep in mind too. So we have limited evidence right now about the optimal duration for whole class phonemic awareness instruction. That's an area that researchers should continue to look at. When it comes to a, a difference that we did see was with you know one-on-one versus small group. And we did see that for one-on-one instruction, um, the optimal duration was a little bit longer, closer to 16 hours. And our um, thought was most of those students who are getting one-on-one are the students who tend to have the most need, right? They're having the most reading difficulty, which is why they would have been provided one-on-one instruction to start with in a, in a majority of these studies. And so it does mean that, like you said, some of these students might need a little bit more, a little bit longer. And that's where the big key takeaway is, again, there's never going to be one magic number for all of our students. This study was not about um, telling you exactly what, how much instruction one student needs. The only way to do that is through assessment for individual students to dis- to see what they need. But it is likely that it might take a little more time for students with dyslexia or reading disabilities. Okay. And I was going to add, add in just to that one thing she said about whole class instruction. So have you all seen the new brief that came out from the Florida Center for Reading Research when they examined Hegarty? Mm-hmm. No, I did not. Okay. So that, that might be another one to, to link if y'all link some, um, but they, they put out a brief of a study that they just completed on um, looking at the effects of that specific phonemic awareness curriculum in classrooms. And they found actually no effects. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Now that you're saying it, that, that, yes, yes, I did. Okay. I thought there was something else. I saw that online. Wait, so can you, can you explain that a little bit more, Tiffany? That Yes. So this one looked at reading outcomes. It, so Marianne Meta, they primarily looked at outcomes for improvement in phonemic awareness from these activities. Whereas this study looked at, did it improve reading outcomes? Did it improve the students' decoding ability, their phonics? And so in classes that used uh, that whole class curriculum versus classes that didn't use it, they found no differences in their reading outcomes. Yeah, no, that's the second study that I've heard of that's come out with those. Yes. It was version one of version one versus v- version two. I actually um, looked into that, and I think that that was referring to version one, and version two hasn't been looked at like that yet, as far as I know. So. I'm not sure. It says they looked at it during the 2021-2022 school year. Yeah, uh, that's the older version. The main, you know, part of that program did stay the same. So they they added in it, I think, uh, a couple different components to the new version. But yeah, so they they looked at that. I don't know which version of it they looked at, but I know it was during that school year. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. We were kind of going back and forth on Twitter about that. 
and, you know, asking, you know, is this. Oh, that's right. That's right. I even. It didn't, it didn't occur to me until you started to bring that up. I said, oh, yes, of course I saw that. And we were wondering if this was based on the program before the revisions were made or after, because I texted Nate Joseph about it. And he, I think he mentioned also that it was the older version. Yeah. So, but this, this is the best evidence we have right now about this. We had, there was another study um, that was done, I think in Pennsylvania. And I don't know if it ever got, if it's gotten published yet or not, but they looked at the same thing and they found that while phonemic awareness outcomes uh, were higher for students in those classes, the reading outcomes were the same. So it's really important for us as teachers to, or, and researchers to look at what outcomes we're looking at too. Like, we're, are we seeing if their phonemic awareness is improving? Are we also seeing if their reading is improving, right? Because that's our main goal. Right. Ultimately, that's the main goal. So getting to Shanahan's article, uh, RIP to Advanced Phonemic Awareness. You know, a lot of people want confirmation of what they think. I do. We all do. It's natural, right? It's 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 a natural thing. When we believe something, we want confirmation that we're on the right track. But I do believe that once we know that something is wrong, it is our duty to say something and retract, apologize, or, or just start from the beginning or make changes. And what's interesting is when I read Shanahan's article, when it came out, Rip to Advance Phonemic Awareness, he said said that David Kilpatrick's work was a cool theory. That's how he described it. It was a cool theory and it was worth testing. And now, of course, Marianne and her colleagues tested it. And now this cool theory is not so cool anymore. So why, you know, I'm going to say something controversial. Why isn't anyone really calling BS on this? And what I mean is, it's like we're dancing around this, right? We're kind of dancing around it, but yet the same people who are dancing around it if this were Fontas and Pinnell or Lucy Calkins, we would want them, you know, taking, you know, burying their programs and taking them off the shelf, which rightfully so should be done if it's not working. But we, we shouldn't we expect the same from people in the SOR world? I don't know, you know, it, it's kind of, it annoys me to have to say it like this. It's hypocrisy. But at the same time, yes, I think so. Any thoughts on that? Why Why isn't anyone talking up enough to say, you know, we, we need to really change this? Even the um, the letters training, I think, still has this in it. People are spending 1500 1600 a person on letters training, and it still has the phonemic awareness piece in the dark. Um, 
I don't see people turning back and saying, now we have to move forward. Now we have this. What are your thoughts, both of you, anyone? Yeah, I'll add, I'll add a couple things and then I'll okay. add Mary. So yeah. they didn't directly test his theory. His, you know, they didn't say this group of students gets advanced PA, this group of students doesn't. And that hasn't ever been tested, right? So he's saying, I want to test this thing. I think the first step is to look at the research that has been done, which is what Marianne and her group, you know, did with their meta and what he would need to do to say, hey, this theory has has uh, some merit is to actually look at the, that research specific to these two outcomes. Um, but that hasn't been done either. So I'll, I'll just start with there. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. So meta-analyses are not what we would call the gold standard, right? The only way to know, you know, as much as we are ever 100%, right, is to do a randomized control trial, right? Like assign one group of students to get you know, in any of these cases, like he was saying, the advanced, add the deletion and substitution tasks, look at both phonemic awareness and reading outcomes, have a group that doesn't, that does blending and segmenting and doesn't go to this advanced level and then test theirs and look at that. And then if one study finds that it was, you know, more effective to have that deletion and substitution, then I'd want to see a replication of it. And then I might start to, to feel really confident about putting that into my curriculum. I think the issue has been a few for, steps, yeah, right? Like we jumped so a few some steps. states were like, let's put uh, these into law, right? Like mm -hmm. a bunch of districts were man mandating these um, phonemic proficiency tasks or, you know, we started over jumping the boat before, put the cart before the horse, I think is yeah. <laughs> saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that is happening everywhere. And I think even um, with the Hegarty changes, people really um, trust and believe that doing these types of one minute drills are the best. And I could tell you, I did them too. And, you know, I really felt at the beginning, I'm going to be very honest, I was like, why is everybody attacking Kilpatrick? I thought, how mean this is. And, you know, and I don't like the idea of attacking any person. I really don't. I still feel that way. However, when you start, start questioning the research, is there research? Tiffany did that. She was being attacked. And like, what, you know, why is she doing this? She's making it bad for the whole SOR side. That is a terrible way to think, okay, that we have to be fearful of um, not walking lockstep and not questioning because then we're just as bad as the balanced literacy proponents. You know, it, I, I don't think people understand by questioning and wanting to keep looking, as you said, science is always evolving, that this isn't meant to attack an individual you shouldn't be attacking the people questioning it either. And if they have valid, if they have valid concerns, we should be open enough to listen and truly show that we're open-minded. Yeah. And I'm going to add too, like it's this translation piece is really, really hard because as researchers, this big group of researchers, right. That 
that that are in the trenches doing the research every day, it's really hard for them to get messages to the larger SOR community. And so whoever they're listening to, you know, it's usually not people doing research because people doing research aren't usually incentivized to spend time writing blogs and going into Facebook groups. And so they're following a lot of times people who um, may not have a background in statistics and or research and are trying to then translate findings and missing the mark sometimes. And we see that happening even now um, with a lot of like Marianne's work. Uh, her paper just came out this week and there's tweets and blogs already misinterpreting the findings that have been shared thousands of times, you know, and so who's hearing uh, people are hearing from these translators rather than the actual researchers. Judy, so this game of telephone, right? By the time it gets to the teachers, right? You, you, we, we have research and then we have people talking about the research and certain people push their theories based on their belief system. So by the time it gets to the teachers, what do you think the teachers think? I think they're going to say, you know what? Every time you tell me one thing, now you change it on me. What do you think, Judy? Well, I think the teachers are getting sick and tired of it. But you know what? I think that they're going to be less tired of it if we do start communicating with the researchers. And that's why it's such a privilege to have Tiffany here and Marianne here, because, you know, I think that in, in literacy, we just have to move away from just beliefs, right? I was very attached to certain beliefs in my career at, at a certain point, which were a lot of things related to reading recovery, right? That was my life. At some point, it almost felt like my identity. But when I started to follow the research and I started to follow the science, I I knew I no longer fit into any camp. I followed what the research was telling me. And yes, my life now is, you know, very involved with structured literacy. But I think it's basically not identifying with camps anymore, but really following the research and thinking about what is best for kids and also not being over attached to the things that we're doing. Like if we know something is not helping kids, let go, let mm -hmm. go. Even if you didn't get the new manual of Hegarty, now you have some more research that came out. Start looking a little bit closer at your data. Start realizing that just because something's in print doesn't mean it is an exact science, right? It might not be. Like, like I talk about HMH, right? There's there's some things that, yes, are more structured. And there's some things that you look at it and you're like, who the hell what wrote this? It wasn't a sophist. Right? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you showed me some things and I just rolled my eyes. And I yeah. know you can't you can't take everything as this is perfect because that's not any, there's no perfect curriculum. And that's why episode after episode, we've been saying we have to, what did we say? Teacher proof. Well, you know, I, I think that we, they tried, I think, right. no, not that we, we are saying that. I think that the programs try to teacher proof. And, right. but, but, 
in the end, teachers just want to know what to do. That's they just want to know what to do. Give them an answer. They want to know what to do. A teacher should be able to see through the BS no matter what curriculum they're using. But just going back to the point that I made before. So now in a lot of the phonemic awareness programs out there, we are seeing a lot with those hand gestures that I mentioned, right? And some are saying to do the hand gestures for a while. Some are saying to let go. Is there any science and research behind those hand gestures? And what's the deal with them? I'll, I'll jump in and, and Tiffany, if you know of something else, I do not know of any studies that have, like we mentioned, explicitly studied hand gestures versus no hand gestures, which is the only way to scientifically say one works over the other. But there was a meta-analysis that looked at multisensory, which might have included right. some of these more kinesthetic movement type things. And again, could not find that that made those programs any better than programs that didn't include it. Remember, this is meta-analysis, so this is correlational research, right? So from what we know right now, it does not appear that adding a multisensory or a kinesthetic component makes the reading outcomes for those students any better than if you do structured literacy things without the kinesthetic piece. So right now, the best evidence we have is that. But again, until somebody does a study that looks at these questions, and I think this is where I come from as a researcher, someone who spent more than 10 years in the classroom of trying to think of these questions that teachers want the answers to. Teachers want the answers to do our hand motions worth it. Should I be doing this? Well, and that's where I, research needs to go yeah. is answering teachers' questions. Yeah. Right? And I'm going to add there yeah. too, Judy, because... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Marianne gave a perfect answer about the hand gestures. I'm going to add in to connect back to what we were talking to earlier. Put some dry erase boards in the student's hands and get them to write the letters down. Yes. Then we have research, yes. right? We have research. That exactly, and that's what my gut is telling me. But you know, as a coach, it's a tricky responsibility being a coach because I I feel ultimately responsible to bring that research into the classroom. And sometimes when I'm giving feedback, you know, occasionally, even though I'm on great terms with these teachers, they'll come back and say, "But this is what the book says." So teachers are heavily relying on the book, and yeah, I'm and heavily that, relying that curriculum. on research. So like, how, there's a fine line of like knowing like like I'll give a I'll give a real life example and I know the teacher that I'll I won't name the teacher's name I don't think they'll be mad but I gave feedback how come you weren't doing the hand gestures and the teacher didn't look thrilled with me and I love her dearly but she said because the book said that's it no more so programs are saying no more. But are they making that decision because it's a gradual release and that's what they're assuming is best practice or not best practice is sometimes a gray area for people like me in, in the field or, you know, and it's like, I think I'm a little bit fearful because we just want to get it right this time. Yeah. So just with what we know about um, phonemic awareness instruction. Focus on segmenting and blending of phonemes, right? Because some of those phonemic awareness curriculums are working really phonologically with syllables and different things too. Yeah, onset and rhyme. So focus on the blending and segmenting of phonemes if you're right. doing it orally. And then right. if you if you have a curriculum with phonics, right, which hopefully we do, um, we're practicing segmenting those words and having students spell them as well. 
So to wrap up, um, because we've been now talking for a while, here's my last thought on all of this. I wish that people would just um, listen a little bit more. Listen a little bit more. And as Judy said, not get overly attached and be open-minded. And if someone's bringing something to your attention, rather than automatically just shut them down, listen and look and, and have some practical experience before just making a decision. Any last thoughts by either one of you, Marianne, Tiffany, before I jump to Judy to wrap up? Anything that we did not cover? Marianne, I see you. I'll, I'll cover one last misconception that I saw a lot on Twitter that I just want to make really clear to remind yes. them what our study looked at. And so there was some confusion that um, with terms like negative outcomes, that is, if we continued phonemic awareness instruction past 10 hours, students would somehow get worse in their phonemic awareness or that, you know, they would eventually have a negative effect size, meaning that they would get, you know, so low that they were scoring really low. That's not what we were looking at. You have to remember, we're looking at the difference between a group who got the instruction and a group who did not get this phonemic awareness instruction. And over time, although that gets closer together, if you keep going, you know, past a certain point, likely, that's what theories say, that's what our research shows, that's what the National Reading Panel showed when they looked at the two middle ground um, lengths of time were what they found to be the most effective, five to nine, and then 10 to 18. And then you went past that and you saw a lower effect size. You did less than five. It was a lower effect size. Right? This is this is science that's been around for a while. And we're just continuing to look at it so that we make sure we're communicating the best information. But kids do not get worse in their phonemic awareness if you keep going. Right. It's more right. about your return on your investment. Is this still the best use of my time? If I'm spending 10 or 15 minutes every day doing it, is there a better thing, like Tiffany was saying, a better way to do this that would benefit students for reading and spelling down the road than continuing with this oral only PA past a certain point? I'm glad you mentioned that. Tiffany, yeah. any last thoughts? Well, I was just going to mention that Florina, the first author on the paper, to thank her because she sent some very helpful things to Marianne and I about um, some of her contributions to the paper to remind us that we were, we've been sprinkling those in, um, but just a shout out to her. Great. Great. Judy, you look like you have one last thought. You don't see it in the chat? I do, but I'll let you say it. You say it. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in. So you're asking about grade two phonemic awareness, right? And when yeah, we stop. So yeah. our study only went up to grade one. Um, the National Reading Panel did go past that uh, and did not, you know, with those included studies, they found that that same general pattern. But until you separate out the smaller number of studies that were grade two and above to look at those separately, we don't know what that yeah. pattern Well, and is. I think she's saying tier one. So like with what they found with 10 hours, that would stop around November of kindergarten. So the, the typical um, 
recommendation for phonemic awareness instruction is about halfway through kindergarten and then the first six weeks of first grade, kind of like we do to review. That's something to think about. Uh, Most that, that yeah. I know it's get well into second grade, but we do have some low You're data. You're talking about tier one. Yeah. Right. So if kids struggle just with what they said, you know, you're looking at this differently for struggling readers. Tier one. Wow. But tier one is the whole class. Wow. Yes. More food for thought. I, I don't think this is going to be the last phonemic awareness episode we're doing, Faith. No. Well, we would welcome um, Dr. David Kilpatrick on. If he wanted to come that. on, we would love to have him talk about it because I really do think that we should have a revision somewhere that teachers should know somewhere in print that things have changed along the way, whether it's a supplement or something on a website. I do think there should be something that should change along the way to clarify for teachers. Anyhow, Judy, why don't you wrap up the show now? Go ahead, honey, hit it. Thank you, Tiffany and Marianne. This was an honor to speak with you guys today. You were fun. You were really fun researchers. You know, some researchers <laughs> are boring and dry. You guys were just a joy, brilliant women, and just a true delight. Anyway, you could follow us on Instagram, the Literacy View. Follow us on Facebook. The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Also on YouTube, The Literacy View. Follow us also on Apple Podcasts, on Buzzsprout, and all those other great places, The Literacy View. And you know, Faith and I have our own Twitter. We're always tweeting away. You know where to find us. Now, the biggest compliment that you could give us is sharing our episodes. Click on share, click on, just clicking on like is not enough. Share it with your friends, share it to your groups. And big surprises are coming for the Literacy View, including a website. Stay tuned, folks. Okay. So thank you. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Tiffany. You know, Tiffany, I love you because you're just a badass. <laughs> a badass. And it was really nice meeting you. So thank you and so long. Bye. Thanks for having us.